Good morning. My name is Eric. The Old Testament reading can be found in the book of Joshua, chapter 24, verses 14 and 15. Now fear the Lord and serve him with all faithfulness. Throw away the gods your ancestors worshipped beyond the Euphrates River and in Egypt and serve the Lord. But if serving the Lord seems undesirable to you, then choose for yourselves this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your ancestors served beyond the Euphrates or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my household, we will serve the Lord. The word of the Lord. Hi, my name is Colleen. The New Testament reading is found in Galatians chapter 4, verses 13 to 14. You know that I first preached the gospel to you because of an illness. Though my poor health burdened you, you didn't look down on me or reject me, but you welcomed me as if I were an angel from God or as if I were Christ Jesus, the word of the Lord. Good morning, my name is Pam, and if you're able, please stand for the gospel reading found in Luke 15, 29 to 31. He answered his father, look, I've served you all these years, and I never disobeyed your instruction, yet you've never given me as much as a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends But when this son of yours returned, after gobbling up your estate on prostitutes, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. Then his father said, Son, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. The Gospel of the Lord. Let's remain standing as we pray. Gracious Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us. Thank you for the way that you speak to us. We ask now that as we hear the scriptures being read and being taught, that you would open up our hearts and our minds. Come, Holy Spirit, and breathe these words into our hearts. Make them truth and reality for us. We pray this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And everybody said, amen. You may be seated. Man, I still got that song in my head. I got a testimony, and I'm going to tell it. Come on. We're having church. Now, the first service, they cheered during the Old Testament reading. You guys did not cheer during the Old Testament. That's okay. You know, it's all right. Just messing with you. <laughs> we're in our Galatians series, a series called The Revolutionary Gospel, and I think we're week eight in the series so far. We've got a few more weeks to go in it. I hope you're enjoying it. If you've missed any of them, uh, do go and catch up on our podcast or YouTube channel, New Life Downtown. Uh, Jason did a tremendous job last week teaching on specifically the topic of what the Bible has to say about slavery, women, and the church. Uh, it's an incredible teaching, so tenderly done and, and powerfully delivered. So yeah, give him a hand and go ahead and give Give it a listen if you missed it last week. In the 1890s in Paris, the French painter Renoir overheard a conversation with another French painter, Degas, because I guess in Paris in the late 1800s, they all just hung out at cafes and painted beautiful things. And uh, Renoir overhears this conversation that Degas is having with another friend of his, and they're talking about the telephone, which had just made its way over there. And and Degas is asking his friend about this, and he says, so when it rings, you get up and answer it. And the friend said, oh, certainly, yes, as soon as it rings, I get up and answer it. And Degas goes, so just like a servant then, the bell rings, you get up and go attend to it. If only Degas could see us now, <laughs> 130 years later, 
Uh, now, uh, there is a bit of a generational divide here. Some people, when the cell phone rings, they answer, they know the number, don't know the number. It says scam risk, doesn't matter. Hello? Right? And then other, other people, you know, like, oh, we're too cool for that. We don't answer our cell phone. But any text you get, any notification you get, my phone, well, I had to take my watch off this morning because my wife and teenage daughters are having a text conversation. I was like, you live in the same house, you know? And it was like just blowing up with text messages. My phone this morning, got to put it on silent mode because my fantasy football alerts are going off, you know? I started Josh Allen instead of Tom Brady, and he's thrown a pick. Why did he do that? But I don't want to think about that right now. I will not be a servant to my phone. Uh, Bob Dylan said decades ago, you got to serve somebody, though. you got to serve somebody. Our Old Testament reading this morning that the 9 a.m. applauded or said amen to was where Joshua says, choose you this day whom you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Bob Dylan said, you got to serve somebody. You're going to have to serve somebody. Yes, you are. Yes, you are. You're going to have to serve somebody. It may be the devil or it may be the Lord, but you're going to have to serve somebody. In each of the stanzas in the song, of course, quote, all the different ways, a business person or whatever it might be, a politician or a, a, a construction worker, everybody's serving somebody. And if you are a new dog owner during the pandemic, you are really serving somebody. Sometimes, you know, there's that joke that if an alien came down and looked at human beings and how they go out with their dog needs a walk and they're walking them and they're picking up their poop and all this stuff. And you're wondering who's serving who here, you know, (laughs) who's the master and who's the pets. But my favorite was this graffiti that I saw where it said, spread anarchy. And then someone else crossed it out and said, don't tell me what to do. Anarchy itself doesn't really work. And we have this sort of, yeah, delete, you can take a picture, leave it up there. We, we have this resistance and it's like, I will be nobody else's slave. I won't do that. You might be telling me to spread anarchy. No, don't tell me what to do. None of us wants to be a servant to something else. And our text this morning is about Paul talking about how the church in Galatia had unwittingly, maybe even unconsciously, become a servant to a system, become slaves to a couple of different things. And we're going to talk this morning about what it means instead to be children of God. If you've got your Bible, you can turn to Galatians 4. If not, it's fine. It'll be on the screen. Galatians 4, verse 1, Paul starts with a couple different metaphors. And you heard some of this a few weeks ago from Jason, but he continues with this metaphor about an heir and the law being like a tutor that kind of a guardian to the people of God. And he says, I'm saying that as long as the heirs are minors, are, are children, they are no different from slaves. He starts to introduce a different metaphor. Although they really are owners of everything, however, they are placed under trustees and guardians until the date set by parents. So this is, this is a typical thing of Paul. He's got two different metaphors going at the same time, and you're like, which is it? And he's kind of like, it's a little bit of both, because every metaphor fails when you're trying to talk about the gospel, right? And so he says, in one sense, if you're an Israelite, if you're in one sense, if you're Jewish, you, you, you were like kids, and the Torah was like this tutor, and it kept you on track, and it kept you as a guardian but it was anticipating this day when you would be full heirs. But then he switches gears and he says, but really, if you're honest, you weren't just a minor heir. It was as if you were like a slave, which that was a metaphor that should have stung. 
For the people of God who had been rescued out of slavery in Egypt. For the people of God who had been exiles in Babylon. For the people of God who had been living under Roman oppression. It would have stung to hear Paul say that. But he says, in the same way where we were minors, we were also enslaved by this world's system. But when the fulfillment of time came, God sent his son. Sorry, we'll stop right there in verse 3. Skip down to verse 8. At the time when you didn't know God, you were enslaved by things that aren't God's by nature. But now after knowing God, or rather being known by God, I like that Paul corrects himself there. How can you turn back again to the weak and worthless world system? Do you want to be slaves to it again? Look at how many times he's using the word slaves or enslaved. You observe religious days and months and seasons and years. And he's giving them some examples. But the point that Paul is driving home is we were slaves and we are easily enslaved. We can't just look at the slavery thing and say, well, that was pre-Jesus. That was before I knew Christ. I once was a slave to sin. Everyone who's been walking with Jesus for any amount of time knows that there is a temptation to go back into slavery. Or as the old preacher saying goes, you could get Israel out of Egypt, but it would take generations to get Egypt out of Israel. We can't just look at this in the past sense and say, yeah, well, we once were slaves. No, we were slaves and we are easily enslaved. What were the Galatians enslaved to? Well, Paul's given us a couple of different things to think about. He says, in one sense, you were enslaved to a law-based system of worth. A law-based system of worth. This wasn't the intent. We talked about this several weeks ago in the series that God made a covenant out of grace and the law itself was an expression of his love. But he says, but somehow you've turned the gift of the law into a master. You've turned it into something that enslaved you and you've become obsessed about particular days and particular seasons and and months of the year and you've, you've made what was meant to be a good gift, you've made it into a master. A law-based system of worth. And then he also uses that peculiar phrase, to the world system. You were enslaved to the world system. There's some discussion among commentators about what does that mean? Is that the world and the way the world operates? Or is it just natural principles like our appetites? Like whatever you feel like doing, you do. That might have some resonances for our day. But then he also says you're enslaved to things that were not God's. So there's a sense in which the Galatian church was a mess. You're looking at old systems of law and you're using that as a way of defining your worth and you're enslaved to sort of your own appetites or the way the world runs and you're enslaved to some false gods. Now if we will ask ourselves, well, what about us? We're not enslaved, We're, we're free, we're Americans too. We're Christians and we're Americans, we love freedom, doubly over. Paul says, well, just examine yourself. What could be your master? I'd like to suggest to you a way of thinking about this, that your master is that which, dot, 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 dun, dun, dun. Your master is that which gives ultimate meaning, worth, or identity. Something that it's good, it's, it's a part of your identity, or it's a part of your meaning, or it's a part of your... Take your job, for example. A job is part of what gives our life meaning. But I I underscore that word, ultimate. You have made something legitimate, ultimate. You have made something good, a God. 
And so it's a, it's a thing that gives ultimate meaning, worth, or identity, or it's something that has ultimate power over your priorities and time, your energy, or your mind. Now, if we stop and think about this for a minute, we can think of a few examples. Now, all of a sudden, we're like, well, there are a few things that they were meant to be good gifts, but I have made them ultimate things. They're legitimate, but I made them ultimate, and because of that, they have power over me. Maybe if you're a business owner or a business person, it's all about profit. And of course, we want to run our business in a way that is good for society and good for our families and is profitable. But there's a way that you can take profit from this level to this level. And all of a sudden, it becomes ultimate. And that becomes the defining lens. And it determines your priorities and your time. And so there's always a way to make more money if you did more. And there's always more reason to be away from your family because you could get more And all of a sudden you look back and you say, gosh, I've given that ultimate power. Or maybe it can even be something good like the care of children and and your children become the thing that has ultimate power. And you're like, yeah, I do feel like that when I'm in the carpool line every day. Like, no, it's not just that. There's a legitimate place that it has, a legitimate power that it has. And then there is a sense that it's, it's gone from legitimate to ultimate. It's gone from good to God. But you see, when a legitimate gift becomes an ultimate thing, it becomes your master and you become its slave. That's what begins to happen. When a good gift becomes an ultimate thing, it starts to gain all this power. And there's even, there's, there's, there's other versions of this. Think about the way our culture talks about sexuality or the ability to, to uh, have sexual expression. A legitimate part of our identity that sort of then becomes ultimate. This is ultimately who I am, and this is who I need. This is who I I am, and this is what everyone needs to allow me to be and do. And there's no more call of denial of ourselves. There's no more cross involved in it. It only becomes that's the ultimate way that I define meaning and purpose and priorities in my life. And if you deny me that, then oppression. That's oppressive. That's when you know that thing has become your master. But there are Christian versions of this too, where we think that if we could just go to church every week and serve and give and do all the Christian-y things, then God will be pleased with us. There are ways of giving us worth and meaning and value. And we say, well, I'll just, I've got to stick with this. I can't miss this. And Jesus repeatedly rebuked people who were stuck in the system of, no, I have to be perfect. I can't break the Sabbath. And he's like, but there's a person who needs you. But you're stuck in this thing that gives you ultimate meaning and worth. And it's become your master. In some, you could say, in summary, you could say that you could be a slave to religion Or you can be a slave to rebellion. You can serve what seems to be a good thing, but you've made it ultimate, made it your master, and that's your way of feeling good and finding purpose. Or you can be a slave to rebellion, your own appetites, your own desires, your own wishes, your own system. And Paul says neither of those things are actually freedom. It's interesting because we live in a culture that says freedom is the ability to write your own story. Freedom is... The ability to express every part of who you are. And Paul's saying, is it freedom though? Or does it end up actually being slavery? 
In verse 4 of Galatians 4, he says, But when the fulfillment of time came, God sent his son. Now, I want you to catch the language of sonship that's going to come in these next few verses. God sent his son, and it says, born through a woman. That means human. He was human. And then born under the law. That means he was Jewish. And we talked a few weeks ago, several weeks ago in the series, where I said it mattered that Jesus came as the seed of Abraham. He, didn't have to, he couldn't come. He couldn't have come as an Asian person. He couldn't have come as a, a European person. He had to come as an Israelite. Otherwise, we could say, God, you're unfaithful to your promise. You said you were going to rescue the world through Abraham's family. And as soon as they were unfaithful, you changed your mind. And God's like, no, I never changed my mind. I'm so creative in my faithfulness and my sovereignty that I found a way to send the Son of God as the seed of Abraham to do what Abraham's family could never do for the world. To be faithful. Yes, thank you. That's good news. That is good news. And that's why Paul makes the point to say he came born of a woman and born under the law. Why? This was so he could redeem those under the law and so that we could be adopted. Now, those two images are very important. To redeem, that language of redemption is the language of moving someone from slavery into freedom. That language has echoes of saying, your, your debt has been paid. Many people in the ancient world, as Jason talked about last week, found themselves in slavery because of a debt. And so part of redemption was to say, no longer, your chain's broken, you're free. In a few weeks, we're going to start a series in the book of Ruth, where Ruth is redeemed into the story by a, a family member. But redemption is not the same thing as adoption. Once again, we've got two different metaphors at work. And Paul's saying Jesus did both. Jesus redeemed you from slavery, but, that, but he didn't leave you and say, good luck now. You're free. Good luck. He said, and I'm going to elevate you by adopting you. You now have status as a child of God. Not just free, but family. Not just free, but family. Into the, adopted us into the family. And then he goes on, he says, verse 6, because you are sons and daughters, God sent the spirit of his son into our hearts. And we can cry out, Abba, Father. That intimate call, Daddy, Father. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son or a daughter. And if you are his child, then you are also an heir through God. Galatians 3, Paul said, you received the Spirit. That should be proof that you didn't get that by law-based obedience. Now he's saying, you've got full status as kids. You've got the Spirit in your heart. That's the demonstration of it. Jesus redeemed us to make us children of God. Now I want to pause and unpack this over the next 10 minutes or so, 10 or 15 minutes. I've, I've chosen to use the word children of God so that we can remember, as, as we heard last week, this is for all, male and female. The, the ground is level now. We're brought into the family. But the text, the New Testament, is written in Greek, and it uses sonship language, but it uses it so we'll hear some echoes. And we're supposed to hear an echo from the Roman world, and we're supposed to hear an echo from the Jewish world. And I want to unpack those for you in just a couple moments. The first is this echo from the Roman world. You remember Galatia, week one, I showed you the region of Galatia, where it is in the Roman Empire, and I talked to you about a highway that was built in Galatia. It's called the Via Sebastos, or the Via Sebastanos. It's the highway 
of Augustus. Augustus Caesar was the first true great Caesar, the emperor over the Roman Empire. Before him was Julius Caesar, who was sort of working that republic system. This is like in Star Wars when Senator Palpatine hasn't become the supreme emperor yet. So Julius Caesar is sort of working behind, shadowy figure behind, and he kind of gets elevated and elevated and elevated, and then he gets assassinated. And then there's a civil war. And who's the guy that emerges the the victor over the civil war? Augustus. Octavian is his name, but he takes on this title, Augustus. Augustus is the Latin title. The Greeks called it Sebastos. In Galatia itself, where Paul is writing, there was a highway called the Via Sebastos. It was a highway with a monument that was a tribute to Augustus. They were like, dude, you're so great. And you gave us a highway. Cool. But you're so great. And they were thrilled to be the favored ones of Augustus. But catch this. Augustus claimed to be the son of God. Why did he do that? Because when Julius Caesar died, they saw like a shooting star or whatever. And they're like, that's his soul going to heaven. He's God. Julius is divine. Maybe we shouldn't have assassinated him. He's God. And they start to worship him. And Augustus says, well, if he's God, you know what that makes me? The son of God. But Augustus wasn't actually Julius Caesar's son. You know what he was? He was his adopted son. Now, this is the language Paul is drawing on. He's saying, listen, Augustus was adopted and therefore became a son of God and had all the status. But was that really good news for you? No. It's good news for one person who's at the top of the totem pole. Paul's like, the good news of Jesus is even better than that. The true son of God made everyone sons of God. That's the good news. You all got adopted. You all got grafted into this family. This wasn't good news for one person at the top of the empire. This is good news for every male, female. That's why he can say neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free nor male nor female. We've all been adopted as children of God. That's what Paul's trying to say. So number one, to be a child of God is to have our status and our purpose restored. So there's a Roman resonance, but there's a Jewish resonance of this phrase, son of God. The son of God phrase is used of Adam. Adam, the first human, is called the son of God. And he's called this because Adam and Eve are made in God's image so that they can do what? Let us make them in our image, male and female, so that they can rule. But the idea is not so that they can dominate and exploit. But the idea is let them look like us and be like us so when they rule, it will be like our rule. It will reflect our wisdom and our kindness and our love. This is the Godhead talking. Let it look like us. And so to be a son of God is to be an image bearer and a ruler. Someone who looks like God and rules like God. Very early in the story we know Adam fails and so the funnel keeps going down. It's like, okay, so not the whole human race then. Okay, how about one nation? And when God rescues Israel from Egypt, what does he call Israel? He says, Israel is my firstborn. He uses son of God language for a nation. So he's like, okay, not humanity. How about one people? Then he's like, okay, not those people either. (laughs) What a mess they are, worshiping other. And he goes, okay, how about the king? How about the king of Israel? So the king of Israel is called the son of God. You see this in the Psalms. The king of Israel is called the son of God. But then Israel's king fails and you're like, can anybody be an image bearer and a ruler? Paging. Will the real son of God please stand up? 
And Jesus comes. And Jesus comes, the seed of Abraham and the son of Adam, the human and the Israelite. He comes to be the true son of God. And because of that, we all become sons and daughters of God. Amen? Amen. So another way of saying this is that you are God's image bearer and co-ruler with him. When I say you have status and purpose, that means you go into your day differently. That means when you're working real estate deals or when you're figuring out business plans or when you're helping manage people's money or when you're, or you're negotiating contracts or when you're caring for and educating children at home, when you're working at Starbucks or in the call center, you're doing it with the status of child of God. You're doing it with the purpose of child of God. It is getting warm in here. I know we got to turn that air on. I'm like sweating in this sweater. Don't fall asleep on me. We got this. You have status and purpose as a child of God. You are God's image bearer and co-ruler. That means you enter your day differently. You don't go into the world saying, well, it's just me. I'm just doing my job. I mean, I'm no missionary. Oh, you absolutely are. Well, you know, I mean, I'm serving God, but, you know, I'm a business person. Exactly. But you're a business person who happens to be a child of God. And so you go in there with the status and the purpose of God behind you. And you go into your work and you say, now, how can I make this place look a little bit more like the wisdom, love, justice, kindness, mercy of God? And that's what you start to do. And that's your, your status and your purpose has been restored. You are God's image bearer and co-ruler with him. Second thing that this means is that to be a child of God is to be an heir to the promise. So yet yeah, to be a child of God is to have your status and purpose restored, but to be a child of God is also to be an heir to the promise. If it gets real bad, you just prop the doors. We got, we got this beautiful Colorado October weather here. To be a child of God is to be an heir to the promise. Now, Maybe it's uncomfortable for some of us to think about status. and I don't want to talk about status. I'm just a. And maybe our whole Christian life has conditioned us to kind of be a little bit of an Eeyore Christian. How are you? Better than I deserve. <laughs> Saved out of hell, which is what I really deserved. Yeah, that's garbage. That's not what the New Testament says. The New Testament says you're a child of God. Your status has been restored. And it's not status for its own sake. It's status for a purpose. Go into the world with your head held high. And then to be a child of God is to be an heir to the promise. The promise of God. Now, there are two extremes here that we can take this. The one, and I think we're all very, very cautious of this now. The one is to slide into what's, what some people call the prosperity gospel. Where you're like, well, I'm an heir to the promise. Bro. So you're not the Eeyore Christian. You're the name it, claim it. Like every, it's all mine. You're the like, it's my right kind of Christian. You know, like I heard a guy, I heard a televangelist once say, you, you put money in a Coke machine, you expect a Coke. So why do you treat God any differently? And I was like 18, but I was like, I don't know too much, but I think it's because God is not a Coke machine. So we don't want this prosperity gospel where we're like, we're heirs to the promise. So give it, God. Give it. I want healing. I want blessing. I want a promotion. I, come on, Jesus. You don't want that. You don't want to act arrogant and demanding. We know that there's a timing to it. We know that we are heirs to the promise, but there's a great one day that's coming, right? But the other extreme is not entitlement but resentment. 
So if the one error about being an heir is entitlement, it's mine, give it, God. The other is to not ask anything but then secretly to foster resentment. And you're like, well, God, wish I was one of your favorites. Seems like Susie gets all the blessings. Pour some of it over here, God. Like, I would like her Instagram post, but actually I'm just jealous. And every blessing you give must mean less for me. And there's this sense of resentment that builds up because it's not entitlement, but it's, it's resentment. But to understand what it really means to be an heir to the promise is to actually believe that everything God has is yours. Everything God has is yours. Could you imagine living like that? Could you imagine praying like that? Could you imagine worshiping like that? Could you imagine serving like that? That you don't serve because you've got to keep God impressed, but to say, he's already given me everything. There's literally nothing more God can give me that I don't already have in Christ. So I'm going to serve just because I want to serve. I'm not looking for a wage. I've already gotten the gift. It changes everything. We got to get this together. If you're going to clap, like clap, you know, like let's just coordinate here. Everyone, one, two, three, like, you know, clap. <laughs> Thank you, Jesus. Everything God has is yours. And when I think about that, I think about the story of the prodigal son. Maybe the greatest story that Jesus told, the story that has captured our imagination for a couple thousand years. We call it the story of the prodigal son, but it's really the story of prodigal sons. The way Luke sets it up is pretty brilliant, or the way Jesus told the sequence of stories is pretty brilliant. Because it starts with another parable. It's a parable of the lost sheep. And how many sheep are lost? One out of a hundred, right? So we did some history lessons earlier. We're going to do some math now, right? You're like, oh, great. One percent. If you're listening to Jesus tell these parables, you're like, oh, Jesus, so you're saying 1% of the world is lost. What a tragedy. Hmm, so sad. Glad it's not me. Then he tells a second story, and it's a parable of a lost coin. And one out of how many coins are lost? Ten. No, it's, what's the percent now? 10%. You're like, 1%. No, 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 10%. One out of 10 is 10%. So we got 1% lost. Now you're hearing the next story, you're like, 10% are lost. You're like, huh. 10%, that's pretty bad, but, you know, 90% of the people are not lost. Then he tells another story about two sons, and one son squanders an inheritance, and you're like, 50%. You're like, wow, 50% of the world is lost. Woo. God, I thank you. I'm not like other people. Those heathens, those rebels. You get to the end of the story, and you realize, actually, it's not 50%. It's 100%. Because both sons leave the house. The first son leaves the house to squander an inheritance. The second son leaves the house in resentment. One in rebellion, the other in resentment. Nope, not going to do it. And the father leaves the house for both sons. If Jesus is telling this story to reveal the heart of God, the father leaves the house for the younger son. And the father leaves the house to plead with the older brother to say, come back into the party. But both sons leave the house and both sons have a slave mindset. Now this is what Paul, I think, is trying to get at. You may be in church, but you might still be living like 
a servant in the house and not a son or a daughter. Both sons have a servant mindset, a slavery mindset. The second son, the prodigal, the one we think of as the prodigal, remember he says, I'm going to come home to my father and I'm going to say to him, even your servants get stuff. And Jesus tells the story in such a way that we know what the son was going to say and the father interrupts him. Luke 15, verse 21, then his son said, Father, I've sinned against heaven and earth and against you. I no longer deserve to be called your son. He's already demoted himself. I'm not, I'm just, brother, I'm not a special Christian. I'm not even a full Christian. I'm just hanging by a thread. If you knew what I've done, if you knew what was in my past, if you knew my mistakes, if you knew my struggles, I'm just a servant. He doesn't even get to that part. The father said to his servants, quickly bring out the best robe and put it on and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Remember what we said? Status and purpose. Fetch the fattened calf and slaughter it. We must celebrate with feasting because this son of mine, let the father's voice be louder than yours. Your voice is, I'm not worthy to be your child. And the father keeps saying, this daughter of mine. This son of mine, this child of mine, I'm not worthy. And the father's like, shh, let my voice talk over yours. Let my word silence yours. This son of mine was dead and has come back to life. He was lost and is found. And they began to celebrate. And then a few verses later, the older brother leaves the house and he's pouting. In verse 29, the father goes after him and says, come on, what are you doing? And he answered his father, look, I've served you all these years and I've never disobeyed your instruction, yet you've never given me all as much as a young goat. Catch that first word. I've served, I've what? I've served you all these years. Servant language. Both sons use servant language. The first, the younger son's like, I'm only worthy to be a servant. The second son's like, the older son's like, I've been living like a servant my whole life. The father's like, that's kind of the problem, isn't it? I've served you all these years. I've never done that. And you've never given me as much as a young goat. But when this son of yours, distance language, not my brother, but when this son of yours returned after gobbling up your estate and process, you slaughtered the fattened calf for him. And then his father said, once again, the father's voice is the voice of sonship. It's so interesting to me. Paul flips it from our perspective and he says, the spirit makes us cry, Abba, Father. But maybe what we need to hear this morning is that the father keeps calling you daughter and son. The only reason we can call him father is because he's first called you child. He's called you child. I'm only a servant. I've served you. Son, he says, you are always with me and everything I have is yours. It's yours. How would it change the way that you prayed if you believed that the Father's like, what do you need? You need strength for today? It's yours. You need grace for today? It's yours. You need forgiveness for your sins? It's yours. You need peace through this trial? It's yours. You need hope for tomorrow? It's yours. Everything I have is yours. We might find ourselves this morning tempted to revert to 
the mindset of slavery. The reality is we've been saved, but in our heart and in our mind, it's like, well, I just need to, you know, I got I got I got I got I got serve the Lord. I got to do this. And you can have a servant heart that is rooted in your identity as a child, or you can have a servant heart that's bound up in an identity of a slave. I got to prove something, got to earn something, got to deserve something, got to, got to justify myself. I got to prove my worth. I got to, I got to, I got to. And Paul's like, look, we, we, we can't even talk about life in the spirit. We can't even talk about the fruit. Of the, we can't talk about all the things that God has ahead of you if you won't start by switching this mindset. Give it up. Let it go. Children of God have status and purpose. Children of God are heirs to the promise. And friends, that is what we are. Would you bow your heads with me this morning? Maybe you can take this moment and let the Holy Spirit show you the ways you've become a slave to something else, your own systems, your own pursuits, your own ambitions, your own appetites, maybe even quote-unquote Christian versions of that to prove or earn, define, And maybe this morning the Lord can start to bring freedom in your heart to say, no, I'm, I have full status as a child of God. Not half status, not partial status. Son of God, daughter of God, child of God. And more than that, I have a purpose. How would it change the way you go to work tomorrow? How would it change the way you go to school tomorrow? How would it change the way you take care of kids tomorrow? How would it change to go in with status and purpose and a promise from the Father. Come, Lord.